Hello, this is Esther Provo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 13th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our first article. Dave Poulin, who is in charge of the Maple Leafs' future? The chain of command could be turned upside down here. The Maple Leafs will be a different hockey team next season. That is certain. Ten unrestricted free agents on the current roster of 23 players will ensure that. In a hard salary cap road, there will simply not be enough money to go around. A disappointing second-round loss to the upstart Florida Panthers helped erase any satisfaction gained from the first-round victory. Over Tampa Bay, the success too short-lived to enjoy. Change is both inevitable and required, as the latest version of the status quo for the white and blue has not been good enough. The path to what team will look like isn't as certain. In sports, the chain of command can be clear. It starts at the top with ownership, moving down through various levels of managers, coaches, and finally to the players. But sometimes wrinkles appear and that chain of command gets turned upside down. Now could be one of those times for the Leafs. The first and most conventional order of business is the status at the top with ownership, moving down through various levels of managers, coaches, and finally to the players. But sometimes as wrinkles appear and that chain of command gets turned upside down, now could be one of those times for the Leafs. The first and most conventional order of business is the status of the general manager, Kyle Dubas, which essentially gives him control at the outset of the offseason. This falls to MLSE and the ownership group. Operating in the final year of his contract, it is unlikely that anything can occur on the hockey operations side until that situation is clarified. Dubas would be a very attractive free agent on the management market, and is, strangely enough, sitting parallel to the stars he has attached himself to, albeit a year in advance. This is a great deal that has to happen on the hockey side moving forward, and much of it revolves around the elite forwards who make up the oft-referenced core four. Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and John Tavares are going to have an interesting summer. The first option is simply to roll that same foursome back for another year. This group has seen five years of disappointing endings, seven for Matthews, Marner, and Nylander, but contractually bringing them back for one more year is possible. The risk, however, makes the idea a moot point. With one year remaining for both Matthews and Nylander, they would both reach unrestricted free agency on July 1st, 2024. Both are eligible for extensions on July 1st of this year. Choosing not to sign new contracts at that point would give them control moving forward. Marner has two years remaining on his deal, but garners a faux no-movement clause July 1 this year, so he essentially gains control then. Tavares is the most secure, with two years remaining and a faux no-move currently in place. He's not going anywhere. It's a lot to digest. In a nutshell, the first three are inextricably tied together. And Matthews, with his Hart Trophy and two Rocket Richard Trophies, drives the bus. Should he opt not to sign a new deal, the leverage moves to his side. He could then influence any moves with the others, stating his desire to return only if he's happy with the rest of the roster. One can only imagine all three in the same room on July 1st, deciding their short and long-term futures. For a similar case, Matthews need only look at Matthew Takchuk, the de facto leader of the Florida Panthers, who just eliminated his team. Last summer, Takchuk informed the Calgary Flames he would be playing out his contract and targeting free agency. The Flames' hand was forced. Rather than losing him at the end of the season, they fashioned 
a multiplayer deal that sent Chuck Chuck exactly where he wanted to go, in the sunny south, and he subsequently inked a long-term deal. Control has increasingly leaned towards the players in these cases, and will again with Matthews. The bigger question for loose management may be whether all of the core four should return for an encore. Though the choice might not be entirely theirs as the pieces fall, the group as a whole has not worked, despite individual success in the regular season. The stars have not led the way at critical times. Something is missing. Seven years is more than long enough to judge. From the arrival of Tavares through a change in coaches and a revolving door of support players, including the most recent trade deadline additions of cup pedigreed talent, the mix has never been quite right. At times brilliant, there has been a maddening inconsistency, and too often, unwillingness to do what is required at the most demanding moments. Those last points are very likely lead to changes that could be welcomed by both the club and the Klee players involved. The real question may be who is actually in control of that change. And on to our next article. How the workers won. Why we're never going back to the office full time. And Toronto will never be same. Empty offices, commuting chaos, and possibly pricey real estate. Can the post-pandemic downtown be saved? In this ongoing series, we examine the fate of the ailing city core and what it will take to thrive again. We've always done it that way. Has never made sense to Tara Vastani. She was the first lawyer in Canada to serve legal documents over Instagram. Urged the law firms she worked for to adopt artificial intelligence technology for legal research. But what would the junior lawyers work on? Came the reply from the managing partners and even questioned the value of those art-filled expensive office spaces. Vastani realized she was commuting to downtown Toronto every day only to hide in her office with the door shut to get work done. If I ever left the office, it wasn't to engage with the people on my team, she says, recalling sneaking out to pirate let's classes or lunches with clients. So when she founded, founded her own civil and employment law firm, Remote Law Canada, she went remote from the start, maintaining a downtown address, essentially just to receive mail. Then just a few months later, the pandemic hit, and Vastani watched with fascination as a new type of worker emerged. When hundreds of thousands of tech workers, bankers, lawyers, accountants, and consultants poured out of Toronto's downtown towers and went home in March 2020, they left behind more than their office cardigans, gym bags, and framed family photos. The abrupt exit also marked an end to the widespread acceptance that office work has to be mostly done in person. And now, for reasons that range, from the nightmare of commuting in the city to the yawning gulf between what some bosses are demanding and what workers are willing to give, it becomes increasingly clear that most of Toronto's financial district workers are never going back to the office five days a week. Instead, the pandemic has supercharged a trend that has been quietly underway since the BlackBerry first untethered workers from their desktop computers. Now most downtown employers are embracing a hybrid approach, of asking workers to report to the office once, twice, or three times a week. And that's already had a profound impact on the businesses and buildings in Toronto's downtown core. On Mondays and Fridays, the Bay Street bustle is largely gone. The path, the underground network of retail shops and food courts, is littered with vacancies and scrambling to adapt with special exhibitions and high-end luxury shops where makeup stores and mass-market clothing stores used to be. Power lunches still happen at restaurants like Jump and Key, 
but now they're mainly relegated to Tuesday through Thursday. Above ground, the financial towers are more than half empty now, and their very purpose is, for the first time, being questioned. It all began with workers going home temporarily. No one really thought it would last more than a few weeks, but it has become a permanent change. One of the transformed the heart of Canada's largest city is no going back. Office workers play a huge role in the makeup of Toronto's core. Of the almost 600,000 employees working in the downtown centre in 2022, data collected by the city shows that 70% were in the office category. But since most COVID mandates were lift lifted in the first half of 2022, after some of the longest lockdowns in the world, many of the high-speed elevators waiting to usher those workers back up the towers have been largely empty. Office occupancy has been generally trending upward for about a year since restrictions eased, according to an index created by the Strategic Regional Research Alliance, a data tracking project supported by a city-boosting alliance that includes all the downtown business improvement associations. Yet at 47% on average as of April 15th, the daily foot traffic in downtown office buildings still isn't even half of what it was before the COVID lockdowns hit. Downtown foot traffic, as tracked by data from cell phones, seems to be recovering more slowly in Toronto than most other cities. The city ranked 55th out of 63 North American cities as of this February, according to the University of Toronto School of Cities. At 47%, Toronto was the lowest of all Canadian cities on the list. As a result, businesses have already cut back dramatically on space. The vacancy rate for downtown Toronto office space hit 15.3% in the first quarter of 2023. According to a commercial real estate firm, CBRE, the highest it's been since 1995. Before COVID, it was just 2%. That vacancy rate is expected to go even higher. As leases come due, many companies are tacitly admitting their workers are never coming back full-time by downsizing or moving to smaller spaces that couldn't accommodate everyone, even if they did want to return. In January, a Collier survey of its commercial real estate clients found 60% of companies said they plan to operate under a hybrid model going forward. Still, some companies, particularly Canada's big banks, are pushing for more face time in the office. RBC CEO Dave McKay said in March that he wants to see employees at work in person three to four days a week, setting loss of productivity when teams don't come together with a shared sense of belonging and purpose. But skeptical employees who see such calls as out of touch and paternalistic are pushing back and even willing to take their labor elsewhere. Once people started working from home, they realized that there was tremendous balance in their lives and they preferred it, said Anne Thornley Brown, a Toronto consultant whose company, Executive Oasis International, specializes in team building. Introverts appreciated a break from the forced socialization, she says. While some racialized workers enjoyed the break from the microaggressions they often face in person. A century-old song about soldiers returning to the home front after the First World War makes for a pretty good analogy for their reluctance to go back to the office, Thornley Brown says, quoting the once famous tune. How are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris? A brutal commute. Toronto's commute, one of the longest in North America, is a major factor in office workers' reluctance to return regularly, says prominent venture capitalist John Ruffalo. The cities that had the longest commute time are struggling to get their folks back, said Ruffalo, founder and managing partner of Maverick's private equity, 
And here in Toronto, the number one issue for the tech community is the commute time. And they can't get people back. The average one-way commute in the city was 56 minutes last year, according to a report by MoveIt, which collects data on commutes through a transit app. Of all the major cities in Canada and the U.S., that put Toronto behind only New York City, which was the winner at 58 minutes. Washington, D.C. and Chicago, even L.A.'s famous congestion is more bearable than Toronto's traffic. Average commutes in L.A. came in at 52 minutes. Driving is an exercise in frustration, with Lakeshore Boulevard torn up for long-term repairs to the Gardner Expressway, and it's about to get worse. As the city shuts down key intersections for Ontario Line construction. Meanwhile, the city is cracking down on e-scooters. Bike lanes are under constant political attack, and delays seem to be standard operating procedure on the TTC, where riders also have mounting safety concerns after a string of unprovoked and violent attacks in the recent months. Raffalo recently took a stake in the startup Just Boardrooms, a kind of Airbnb for hotels, offices, and restaurants that lets them offer their empty or underused meeting spaces on a short-term basis. The options include boardrooms and areas outside of the downtown core, which can be appealing to new companies that never opened an office in the first place, he says. Raffalo himself still believes in the value of in-office time. His firm has a mandatory in-person meeting every Monday and expects employees to come in two additional days. But he says the just boardroom startup is taking advantage of the fact that we will never go back to the old way. People are realizing they still need places to meet, but they don't want to drive downtown. Middle class squeeze. Is working from home really working? That was the question posed by Stephen Ratner, former Obama advisor and current New York City finance executive, in a March op-ed on remote work in the New York Times. Ratner wrote that he heard from many unnamed CEOs working from home that working from home is simply not productive. It doesn't work for those who want to hustle, he said, quoting J.P. Morgan head Jamie Dimon, and it's virtually impossible for employers to keep tag tabs on their far-flung workers. The column was met with immediate backlash on Twitter, where the general sentiment was, did a CEO write this? In a response published by Slate, Ben Mathis Lilly brought up the concept of the middle-class squeeze, detailing all the costs tied into office working that are increasing with inflation, while workers' pay hasn't budged. Transit fares and gas bills, takeout coffees, lunches, professional clothes, and dry cleaning, plus childcare spending for workers with kids. They all add up to thousands of dollars per year. In the past, employees sucked those costs up, but many are no longer willing to do so after seeking the alternative. Shortly after the Ratner column, RBC's McKay announced his own plans to get bank employees into the office more often, sparking a similar reaction on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Reddit threads. RBC declined interview requests for this story. One downtown financial industry worker who spoke with the star says that he and his wife bought a modest house about 90 minutes from the city during the pandemic, unable to afford anything in Toronto's real estate market. The star is not naming him because he fears frank comments on this topic could hurt his career. He's comfortable commuting about one day a week for a meeting or two, but figures it costs him between $50 to $70 each time when you factor in the GO train tickets, gas money to get to the GO station, food costs, and more. 
and it's all just for the privilege of going in and being less productive. If his employer demanded he come in more often, he says those costs would be a major factor in his next salary negotiation. He says he sees the value in meeting in person regularly. But if his boss asked him to be coming in four or five days a week, he would look for work elsewhere. Now that I experienced how much productive and how much better my life can be working from home, I'm never going back to five days in the office, he says. Anyone who tells me to do that is telling me to be less effective as a worker, to be more miserable, and to spend more money. The productivity lie. And about that productivity argument, many employees just don't buy it, says Chris Ford, president of IntelliWare and IT services and consulting company with about 115 workers based in downtown Toronto. One of the most cited reports on remote work and productivity, based on a pre-pandemic study of a Chinese travel agency led by Stanford economics professor Nicholas Bloom, found that call center workers who worked from home were, for, who worked from home four days a week were happier, and their performance was better than those who worked in the office all the time. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Ford says his company works regularly with the banks, and the impression he gets from speaking with the financial industry employees is that they are suspicious about why exactly their bosses want them back in more often. They don't necessarily believe the corporate mantra, which is that it's important to our culture for mentoring and professional development for innovation, he says. But workers think things like the government is pressuring the banks so that the downtown businesses can be supported, or that management secretly believes they're not really working from home. Some also suspect that highly influential banks want to spur a broader return to the office to help shore up the commercial real estate business, which makes up a huge chunk of their loan books, about 10%, and is a major pillar of the Canadian economy. Financial analysts are warning the plateauing of return to office numbers could lead to a reduction in demand for office space in something in the range of about 20% compared to 2019, seriously denting bank profits. As long-term leases come up for renewal in the coming months and years, businesses with hybrid work policies are likely to opt for less space. Some urban thinkers see an opportunity here to use buildings in new and creative ways, including by converting some office space to housing. Whatever may be behind the push at some companies to mandate increased attendance, there's a tension between many workers and their bosses that didn't exist before. RBC may find that the employee pushback RBC may find that the employee pushback is consistent and negative and that it actually hurts productivity because you're breaking trust with employees who don't feel that the business is willing to do the right thing for them and doesn't trust them, Ford says. It's a terrible basis for relationships. Workers ready to walk. When it comes to the nuclear option of return to office policies, most companies aren't actually going to fire people for not coming in. Consulting company Gartner, which has regularly been surveying U.S. employees back to office plans, estimated last fall that a meager 3% of businesses would take that approach. Workers are less likely to back down in this particular game of chicken a significant portion of employees say they'd be willing to quit over strict returns office policies. 
According to an Angus Reid Institute online survey of more than 1,600 Canadians in February, when faced with the demand to come back to the office full-time, 31% they would comply, but would consider looking for a new job while 21% said they'd be likely to quit or look for a new job right away. In one recent high-profile example of this, longtime Fifth Estate broadcaster Gillian Findlay said she left the CBC after failing to come to terms on a remote work arrangement. CBC told the National Post it was sorry to lose her, but added that the extra child expenses related to Finlay's recent decision to move to another province were a factor. And employees have some unexpected leverage on this front. Even amid a high-profile round of layoffs in the tech sector, the labor market for white-collar workers in Canada remains tight. Fears of a recession loom, but recruitment from recruitment firm Robert Walters said in March that banking, tech, and finance firms in Toronto faced hiring challenges and had unfilled roles. Across Canada, there are more than 50,000 job vacancies in the professional, scientific, and technical service sectors in February, according to Statistics Canada. These jobs would mostly have been in-office roles before the pandemic, but many job seekers these days want more autonomy over where they work. If some corporate leaders force employees back into the office, as soon as they find themselves in a position where they can find a more flexible working arrangement, they're going to quit, says team voting consultant Thornley Brown. Probe and quitty in a hybrid world. Still, if the old office is dead, long live the hybrid office of the future. It's, it's not five days a week for everyone, but people do go to the office. By mid-April, foot traffic downtown on Wednesdays, the most popular day, hit an average of 59% of what it was before the pandemic, according to the SRRA's Occupancy Index. Friday is the slowest at just 27%. There's still some magic to be found in propinquity, or face-to-face -face interaction, says Ford. But he doesn't think businesses need to implement a mandate or set in-office quotas to get those benefits. You don't have to be in the office three days a week or five days a week in order to build relationships. Like many companies, IntelliWare has gotten creative about how it convinces employees to come together in its brick and beam building on Adelaide Street West. From tequila tastings to hosting regular jam nights for musicians and bringing in speakers to discuss non-work-related topics. And some younger employees actually want to come into the office more often, said Kimberly Dart, early talent specialist with ATB Financial in Calgary. They want hands-on training, mentorship, and the chance to develop a sense of belonging at work. For them, work is more, work is more about socializing, she says. On the opposite end, many more senior employees also appreciate the time in the office, says Rufolo, and they're the ones that can use their sway over business decisions to maintain at least some office footprint for many companies and firms. Plus, the city centre does have its allure. People do enjoy the restaurants and going to the Raptors and the Leafs. That's not going to go away, Rufolo says, but if you miss nice restaurants and your coming time is two hours each day, you're going to say, well, screw that. And on to our next article. A small step out of their bubbled life, 
For these migrant workers in Ontario, a hot meal and some support feels like a game changer. Wearing the best outfit he has with him, a neat t-shirt and a pair of jeans, Alfredo Garcia excitedly hops off a big yellow school bus in the scenic rural community. The father of two from Mexico says he looks forward to this weekly outing to Simcoe Town Center Mall. He's one of the hundreds of migrant workers who converged Thursday or Friday evenings from across southwestern Ontario. Chatter and greetings in Spanish and Patois fill the air as workers load up on a week's worth of food supplies from a food basics, buy little gifts for loved ones from the nearby giant tiger, and line up at machines to wire money to families back home. What's happening at this community hub is part of a new project that's meant to support and integrate tens of thousands of foreign workers who can otherwise live in isolation across rural Ontario. It's meant to offer them the services that they often struggle to get despite being the backbone of many small communities in the province. The Toronto-based The Neighbourhood Organization, or the TNO, and its many community partners use this location and many others to identify a group that is often visible and vulnerable and help them access the health, legal, and social services. What the migrants on the receiving end of these services say is even more important, though, is the feeling of being part of a community in their home away from home. Convivier is how Garcia sums up his weekly trip to the mall in nearby Trinity Anglican Church, one of the project partners from a community dinner served with volunteers to as many as 300 migrants who work on farms and meat plants and fast food joints in the area. It's the fellowship, said the 38-year-old through a translator as he lines up for its dinner rolls, garden salad, and a bowl of chili that he says helps with his feelings of homesickness. This is why we come here, because we want to convivere with other people in the community. The feeling of being welcomed is refreshing for the Karataro native, who returned recently to start his 10th season under Canada's Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which ushers in migrant workers from Mexico, Caribbean, and Central America to help on farms before sending them home at the end of the harvest season. This is our only opportunity to get some recreation and to have some relaxing time. It feels good to know that we can come here, hang out, relax, have a bite and chat with people and learn about something, says Garcia, who spends the rest of his week between his bunkhouse and the produce farm that's half an hour away from town. It makes us less invisible in this community and it makes us feel more welcome and accepted. It makes us feel like we have a place where we can come in and live with other people, right? Supports for migrant workers are generally offered <clears throat> by advocates and volunteers, and sometimes through a patchwork of ad hoc government-funded programs, because they are not permanent residents and as such are ineligible for settlement services. However, during the pandemic, there was a growing public recognition of their contributions as essential workers and a new awareness of their vulnerabilities due to the precarious immigration status in Canada. The new project known as the Migrant Workers Support Services and its office opened Friday in the heart of Simcoe and have made possible with been made possible with $5.7 million in funding from Employment and Social Development Canada. The money is meant to build a network of support in Ontario to ensure 
that the workers' health, safety, and quality of life while living and working in this country. The project headed by the TNO brings together dozens of community and faith-based organizations, legal clinics, local networks, and multicultural groups in Greater Sudbury, Kingston, Kitchener, Oshawa, Ottawa, Owen Sound, Simcoe, Thunder Bay, Toronto, Windsor, and places in between. It's a wraparound, says Jennifer Rajasekar, TNO's program manager who oversees the project. We learned during the COVID pandemic that what the needs and gaps are, we can't work in silos. Unlike typical settlement services that are available at locations with nine to five hours, many of the programs and workshops here are offered in the evenings, after workers' long work days and on the weekends. Sometimes they are delivered to where the workers are or virtually via WhatsApp. But first, a team of multilingual outreach workers have to be able to locate the workers in the first place and to start to build a rapport with them. Reaching them is the hard part, says Daniel Quesada Robeldeldo, a program coordinator and outreach worker. Sometimes you reach out to one of these community groups. They tell you right away where they are. Other times, that can be challenging. Someone tells you about this apartment building where this apartment building where they live and you're outside waiting. Suddenly 40 Mexican or Thai workers come off of the bus. Another part is how do you build that relationship? You just have a random person walking up to these folks at a grocery store or at a restaurant or whatever it is. You may you have maybe a two minute window to tell them who you are. But the majority of migrant workers are receptive to the offer and may come with questions about the services available how to access an income tax clinic, how to do daily banking and navigate the health system, about Canada pension plan and, and the parental benefits. Information workshops and one-on-one -on -one counseling are held in various languages, along with regular recreational activities, such as an upcoming soccer tournament in August and a planned dominoes night in the works. Father Enrique Martinez says that the Trinity Anglican Church is grateful to be a partner in the project. It allows the church to expand the work its congregation has already been doing since the middle of the pandemic. We try to open a space for the workers to come here, not only for supper, but we want to offer some relief for their mental health, says Martinez. Faith is hugely important for the workers, especially those who are Spanish-speaking. We pray together. They are in Canada away from their families and it really damages their mental health. Jamaican farm worker Jagan Brown's bus arrived in town from work in the nearby town of Jarvis around 7 p.m. this summer evening. And many of the items such as clothes, boots and hats donated to the church have been taken. It was only his second visit to the church dinner after he was stopped a week ago by an outreach worker outside of the Simcoe Mall. The 33-year-old from Montego Bay used to work in trades, but was forced to leave home to work in a flower nursery in Canada for the first time last year. The pandemic has left the economy in Jamaica in rough shape. We are brought to Canada to work. We work long hours. That's okay, but it's just really difficult to be away from family, says father of three as he grabs one of the last donated water bottles left in a box. We are here for a better life for our kids and ourselves. It's nice to have a place like this to get a hot meal and some support, says Brown as he hurries back to the mall 
where a bus would later pick him up and take him back to his bubbled life in Jarvis. And on to our next article. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This is a system that's breaking. Toronto food bank lineups swell as grocery prices spike. On Saturday mornings, Maggie Herdman, 31, leaves her home near Jane and Eglinton at 6 a.m. to commute nearly an hour to the Fort York Food Bank. Once there, it can take up to four hours before it's her turn to shop inside the small College Street storefront. Before the pandemic, Herdman used to be able to relax, sit down and read as she waited inside. Now, through rain and snow, she stands by as the line snakes behind her towards Kensington Market. I've gotten sick before, said Herdman, a recipient of Ontario Works, but I still do it. Getting there early ensures the best selection of groceries for her kids. Cereals, peanut-free snacks for school, and she'd do anything for them. A video of the lengthy lineup outside of the Fort York Food Bank recently went viral on social media, but it isn't unique. Lines at food banks across the city have grown dramatically in recent months. And as more and more Torontonians find themselves unable to make ends meet amid soaring inflation and spiraling food costs. Devi Arasanek Ayagam, chair and co-founder of the Fort York Food Bank, which relocated to College Street several years ago, expected to see fewer people as COVID-19 restrictions came to an end. However, the opposite happened. The bank has seen a 50% jump in clients since last year. It now serves more than 3,200 people each week, a record for the food bank. Arasenegayan believes a drastic increase is due to inflation and an unsustainable cost of living in the city. We've noticed that the faces of people coming into the food bank have been different, she said, noticing a large increase in younger employed clients as well as those with post-secondary degrees. The number of first-time users at Fort York remains high, at 92 new households a week. Housing is expensive, food is expensive, transit is expensive, Arasana Yagam said. People are finding that they can't manage, and they're turning to food banks. A year or two ago, it was COVID. Now, I have to believe pretty firmly that it's grocery prices said Harry Compton, food bank manager at Oasis Dufferin Community Centre, about the similar increase in clients he's seen there. In March, the food inflation rate was 8.9%, more than a double the general inflation rate, according to Statistics Canada's Consumer Price Index. When compared over the year, the price of groceries is rising at a slower rate, but that doesn't mean that overall prices are coming down. It's gone from about 100 people a week to almost 500, Compton said, comparing to when he started at the center four years ago. The lineup goes all the way down the block and around the corner. He added, it's a bit intimidating and you second guess if you're going to be able to meet the need that day. Compton said the center hasn't had that problem yet. Though it's experienced low supply in key areas like dairy or eggs, he's noticed some people walk away upon seeing the lineup likely to try another day, or another food bank. Michael Tremblay, 40, used to visit the Fort York Food Bank from 2017 to 2021. He was shocked to see the recent video on social media. There would be lineups in there, he recalled from his days using the site, but never anything out the door. 
a recipient of the Ontario Disability Support Program, ODSP, Trombley moved to Guelph two years ago after losing his place in Toronto. He's noticed longer lineups at a Guelph food bank too, and thinks it's due to the increasing pressures of inflation and mortgage rates. The amount of people on disability or in poverty just can't double overnight, he said. We're getting pressure from somewhere. I believe it's the middle class backed into a corner with all these bills. Because of the inaccessible location of his closest food bank in Guelph and the small quantity of food it's able to provide, Trombley instead relies on the dollar store for most groceries. He's lost more than 90 pounds since he's moved. Arasanagnagam emphasized that the change is needed at all levels of government to address the cost of living, so that people don't have to choose between paying for food or rent or translate or transit. She highlighted now how social assistance programs like ODSP and Ontario Works currently do not provide a livable income. This is a system that's breaking, Arasanagam said. She said food, financial donations, and volunteers from the community are needed, but don't address the root of the problem. The biggest piece is systemic change to make sure we don't have to continue to serve people at these high pressure levels. Even after supplementing with groceries from the food bank, budgeting, and planning meals, Herdman only eats one meal a day to keep her three kids fed. I've cut out a lot of things for myself, she said. I just want them to be kids. And on to our next article. Seven ways the Ontario Science Centre move doesn't add up. The province needs to provide answers. It's cheaper. We need more housing. It's rundown. Employees are keen to move. Those are a few of the reasons Premier Doug Ford and his cabinet ministers have offered to justify their controversial decision to relocate the Ontario Science Centre. It's been almost a month since the announcement about the centre's move to Ontario Place, and so there remain more questions and answers around the government's rationale. Among them, moving the Science Centre will allow thousands of new housing units to be built on the site at the Eglinton Avenue East and Donmos Road. This, according to the province, is the main motivation for the move. We want to create as much density as possible, Premier Doug Ford said in announcing the relocation. Not so fast, said the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority, which owns portions of the lands occupied by the centre and its parking lots. The centre sits in a scenic ravine setting where the lands are considered hazardous due to the steep slopes and floodplain associated with the Weston River. Nothing can be built on our land, Michael Talensky, the TRCA's chief financial and operating officer, told the Star, citing provincial, municipal and authority policies. The authority bluntly noted that no discussions had been held between it, the province and the city on plans to move the centre and build housing on the lands, or change a 99-year lease for the property occupied by the centre. The authority was seeking a meeting with the province to clarify its plans. A spokesperson said this week there is no update. Science Centre staff want to make the move. They want something new. They want something sparkling and have an opportunity to be able to walk into a beautiful facility, Ford declared. Not so, says J.P. Hornick, president of the OPSEU, the union which represents some 400 employees at the centre. Not a single one of them is happy. They're angry. They're upset. They weren't consulted, Hornick told the Star this week. OPSEU has said there are no discernible benefits and many disadvantages to moving from the current spacious location in Don Mills to a congested site downtown. Declining attendance. Ford declared that visitors to the center were down 40%, a figure later clarified to 30%. Even that is misleading. As Canadian Press noted, that comes from comparing 2012 to 2013 figures to 2022 to 2023. 
a year in the pandemic had slashed attendance. The drop is about 10% when compared to 2018 to 2019 before the pandemic, when there were 88,837 visitors, it said. The new site will attract 1 million visitors a year. The center may certainly benefit from the waterfront location close to other attractions. Less clear is how many visitors will stay away, put off by an inevitable downtown traffic bottlenecks. That concern puts a question mark over a key role of the Science Center to educate students. The 2017-2018 annual report counted some 170,000 visits by students and teachers. Will the relocated center remain accessible and inviting to such school field trips? The proposed move comes just as the existing site will be easier to access via public transit once the Eglinton Crosstown LRT eventually opens. The existing center is a run-down old building. Here, the provincial government needs to look in the mirror. If the center is in disrepair, the blame falls squarely on Queen's Park for failing to make the investments needed for the center's upkeep and to revitalize exhibits. For example, a key pedestrian walkway is closed, forcing visitors to take a shuttle to exhibits on a lower level. The center's 2017 to 2018 business plan highlighted that the builder requires ongoing upkeep of obsolete or failed infrastructure and pegged the 10-year deferred maintenance needs at $147.5 million. Raymond Moriyama, the architect who designed the center, said it was built to last. We guaranteed that with proper maintenance, the life of this project will last far beyond 250 years, he wrote in a letter to the Star. Moving the center is cheaper than renovating and revitalizing the existing site. Infrastructure Minister Kinga Surma said that a business case showed that it was less expensive to make the Science Center part of the Ontario Place and to build a brand new modern facility, one with new exhibits. Yet the province has so far refused to make that business case public, keeping Ontario residents in the dark. About the assumptions in the business case and the true price tag, the relocated center will be spectacular and state-of-the-art. The government wrote out the superlatives to describe the new site. One thing is for sure, it will be smaller, just about half of the current space. Who gets left behind in that move? What's the impact of the exhibits, Hornick said. As well as Hornick notes, the current facility was purpose-built to be a science center, with dedicated workshops behind the scenes for the design and maintenance of exhibits. Ontario Place could well serve as a satellite facility to showcase a specific science theme, but the government has yet to show how the entire centre can be shoehorned into a space half of its current size. These are all red flags. More and more it screams of something thought up in a hurry to distract from the government's other waterfront folly, the mammoth private spa on prime Ontario Place lands. And on to our next article. How a Toronto computer chip maker is providing the better brains AI runs on. Untether AI is a very rare breed among the many AI outfits spring up over the past decade. For starters, it is Canadian in a field dominated by American companies, but it also isn't trying to build the next ChatGPT. Instead, Untether, headquartered in Toronto, produces the gray matter needed to run an AI program, specialized computer chips. Thanks to the ubiquity of AI, these chips are needed everywhere. One notable place under the hood of GM's autonomous vehicles. Last year, Untether AI announced a new partnership with the auto giant to produce AI perception systems that are used to help autonomous vehicles find their way without human assistance. But the future of AI chip design goes far beyond Untether. 
tech superpowers like the US, Taiwan, and China are pushing the boundaries of chip design in what appears to be the 21st century space race, or arguably the nuclear arms race. About 90% of the semiconductor world outsources its productions, and the largest factories tend to be found on either side of the new Cold War. Untethered AI's contribution to today's chip industry is described as energy efficient yet affordable. With AI set to dominate computing over the next five years, electricity consumption by the industry will go through the roof. A low footprint chip capable of handling the most advanced AI's operations without mounting into a shiny puddle is, in Untethered AI CEO Aaron Iyengar's view, essential to lightning load. Are there fundamental differences between the chips people have in their cars to the chips your company is designing? There are all sorts of chips, just like there are all sorts of books. If you want to learn Russian, you wouldn't pick up an English dictionary. From a silicon perspective, you need to figure out where and what you are using a chip for. So the answer is yes. You end up using different types of chips in a lot of different types of scenarios. We are actually very, very different than other chip makers. We're one of maybe three Canadian chip companies that were founded here. Startups also typically try not to do simple things. We've taken on a very big, complex thing. What we focus on is artificial intelligence usage. In artificial intelligence, there are two components. Actually coming up with a model and then you use a model. We're on the, si we're on the use side of the equation. That could mean autonomous vehicles or smart cities or smart retail or robotics. Those are all good examples of applying a trained model. Why are there so few Canadian chip companies? Canada's got great AI talent on the software side. If you close your eyes in downtown Toronto and throw a rock, you'll probably hit an AI shop that's doing software, and that's great. But AI is the one discipline that's going to change the way hardware and software work together. It used to be that when you designed something for the internet, you didn't really care about the underlying hardware. You could use anyone's processor, anyone being Intel. AI is different. You need specialized hardware to run it. So I think what's happened in Canada is that everybody's focused on software. The hardware has been an afterthought. These, these companies think a company somewhere else is going to make the hardware and they'll just use the hardware because they think Canada doesn't have that capability here. You are listening to a reading of articles and features in the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. We really thought it was silly for a company to be based anywhere except in the hub of AI software land. There's a lot of usage that happens right here. How do your AI chips differ from what's already on the market? Are they more resistant to heat? Are they faster? Now you're getting into why we're in existence, which is the right question. Companies like Nvidia and AMD and Intel make graphics processing units or GPUs. They are typically used for AI today. GPUs are designed with a technique called von Neumann architecture, a really powerful old-school architecture that's worked very well for the semiconductor world from the 1950s up until now. It's called a load-and-store architecture, which basically means you have memory outside the chip, you have processing inside the chip, and you have a very long, narrow connection connecting the two. It's kind of like the Don Valley Parkway when it gets clogged. You just sit there burning energy and you end up with a very low utilization when it comes to AI. If AI is deployed using this general purpose von Neumann architecture, you end up with a hidden energy crisis. It will actually take away the ability to deploy AI and make it available to the global population. It'll be more for the elite. What's this energy crisis? 
Have you heard of ChatGPT? Running ChatGPT for a month using traditional chip technology consumes the same energy as powering a town of 175,000 people every month. Nobody talks about that because ChatGPT is amazing. It's awesome, but this is a problem. This is a crisis that's in front of us if we don't have a more efficient way of deploying artificial intelligence. That's where we come in. Basically, we blow up the von Neumann architecture and come up with a completely different means of putting memory and data processing right next to each other. So the data movement and energy consumption is minimized drastically. It moves such a tiny distance that we can't even measure it with our naked eyes. But in traditional von Neumann architecture, 90% of the energy going into that chip is moving the data. We take that to pretty much zero. You've worked in the US and now you're in Canada. Are there any major differences between the AI sector in both countries? When I joined the company, the idea of a chip company in Canada made no sense to me. To me, a chip company needed to be in the US because guess what? That's where Silicon Valley is and we should be in the land of Silicon. So I thought, Maybe I'd have a software team in Canada and move the hardware side into Silicon Valley. It's easier to find software engineers in the Toronto area because it is a hotbed for a lot of good AI talent. It's not as straightforward to find hardware talent. Very shortly, I realized I very shortly I realized moving the company to the US made no sense because the talent I found here and continue to find here is amazing. I'm also seeing people that spend time in the US saying they want to come back to Canada because that is where they are from. We're creating those opportunities for them. We're giving them the chance to work in a cutting edge company working on Silicon, which would be the equivalent of what I'd be doing in a startup in Silicon Valley. That's been a huge magnet, if you will, for people to say, wow, that is pretty cool. When they actually come in, and these are people that have worked at companies like Google, they think what we're creating is very, very interesting technology. The Biden administration is really interested in setting up semiconductor fabricators in places like Ohio. What kind of impact would it have on the AI sector if we did that here? That would be the Canadian government basically saying that semiconductors are going to be the backbone of everything we do. And if we don't own the supply chain, we're at the mercy of somebody else. It would be great. The three Canadian chip startups I talked about earlier would probably grow to 30 the day it gets announced. I would probably be 300 when the factory actually started functioning. There are some massive chip makers in the semiconductors arms race like NVIDIA. How do you keep up with a giant like that if you're a startup in Canada? The way we answer that question is not necessarily through saying, let me tell you how we're better. It's, let me show you how we're better. I'll give you an example. We work with a smart retail customer that was looking at a way to bring in more cameras into a store and to be able to capture theft or whatever the case may be. What they found is that they were limited to a certain number of cameras with their existing chip. For the same amount of power they were using, we could add six times the capacity of their cameras. All of a sudden, every aisle could have a camera and not just for theft deterrence, you could just come by, wave your card, and a store could know what a customer has already picked. 
These are use cases that customers could not do with their existing implementation. Are there any supports you'd like to see from the federal government to make the AI space better in Canada? I think that a lot of it starts from universities, and the Canadian university system is really, really good. We get a lot of really good talent coming out of the University of Toronto and the University of Waterloo. On the semiconductor side, you need to be certain that it is critical to the country's success. If you have that as your DNA, which is something the US has really moved toward, and something China did about five years ago, then your policies would change automatically. I wouldn't have to pick the one thing I need. Recognize that semiconductors are going to be the DNA of progress. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. And on to our next article. Mike Warner, Jays make all the right moves in the second straight win over Braves. Here's what you need to know about the Blue Jays' 5-2 win over the Atlanta Braves at the Rogers Center on Saturday. Swanson delivers. The Jays' game-winning rally in the bottom of the seventh inning might never have happened had Eric Swanson not come in to save the day in the top of the frame. Handed a bases-loaded, one-out jam by a shaky Yimmy Garcia, the righty calmly struck out Eddie Rosario with six consecutive splitters, then popped up Ozzy Albies to shallow left field. Left-handed hitters are 3-for-30 against him this season. Swanson came back out to throw a hitless eighth, lowering his ERA to a minuscule 1.33 before handing things over to Jordan Romano, who locked down his 10th save. Springer soars. George Springer has been under the weather for almost two weeks, but when he feels well enough to play, he drags himself onto the field. On Saturday, he contributed in a huge way. A seventh inning single helped to key the game-winning rally in which he also stole a base and scored a run, but the bigger impact was with the glove. With two on and two out in the fifth and the Jays down two to one, Springer dove to his right for a spectacular grab of a Rosario line drive that looked like it was headed into the corner for a two-run double. It was only fitting that Springer did that Superman dive and from the Jays' original Superman, Kevin Peller, who was watching from the visitor's dugout. Kiermaier connects. Blue Jay Kevin Kiermaier continues to make good on his pledge to be the best ninth place hitter in baseball. He went 3 for 4, raising his batting average to .311. Kiermaier doubled in each of his first two at-bats, the second a hustle job on a ground ball to right field. That time, Kiermaier moved up on a wild pitch and scored the game-time run on the first of Bobichette's two RBI singles. Two innings later, the center fielder scored the go-ahead run on another Bichette single, which Kiermaier set up with his legs. The 33-year-old took off for third base, with Springer trailing into second for his fourth steal of the season. The double steal forced Atlanta to bring the infield in, and shortstop Orlando Arcia had no chance on Bichette's 108.7 miles per hour rocket up the middle. Mike Wilner is a Toronto-based baseball columnist for the star and host of the baseball podcast, Deep Left Field. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 13th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.